If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A couple of months ago, I traveled to Rotterdam, the second largest city in the Netherlands, with my producer, Paul. We took a 30-minute bus ride to a quiet suburb. Thinking about all the people who would have made this journey and the anticipation and also the kind of nerves and anxiety and fear they would have felt. We passed picture postcard scenery, Dutch flags flying from gabled roofs, little waterways, cyclists wheeling past with baskets on their bikes. Am I going the right way? Yeah, we have to go this way, Vordyke. Yes, it's this road, isn't it? Yeah. Nice little suburban area, very quiet street. What number is this? Two. So, yeah, we're all looking for number 276. I don't know, it feels really creepy being here, actually. Here it is. And it's a very strange-looking place, a huge building. We came to a set of wrought iron gates. Behind them, at the end of a long paved driveway, there was a custard yellow building that looked like something out of a Disney cartoon. There it is, oh my goodness. There were net curtains behind its tall shuttered windows. There were black lanterns illuminating the path to its front door. <laughs> there is a stalk on the top of the building. And perched on the roof, peering down over the entrance, there was a large metal stalk. The bird that magically brings babies to grateful parents everywhere. There's a camera on us. Is there? I'm on the right. Oh, yes, there's a security camera. Trigger? Yeah. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of women walk down the long driveway under the gaze of that metal stalk. For nearly 30 years, this building was the place where life was created. This is where a renowned fertility expert lived and worked. The women who came here trusted that he would be able to help them conceive the babies they so desperately wanted. The doctor was famous throughout the Netherlands and beyond. Such a charming man and he was so empathic and you would really listen to him. Very good doctor, the creme de la creme. The last hope of people who didn't have children and didn't have chance to have children. But after the clinic's doors closed for good, there were whispers that patients here had been given a kind of help that they didn't ask for. As the babies conceived here became adults, they began to ask questions about where they came from and what happened to their mothers at the clinic. My mother had to tell everybody the true story, but it was never meant to be told. Is this the clinic you went through? Look, mom, there's something wrong. This is the story of a doctor determined to create life by any means possible. 
This is the whole thing, the whole question of what went on in here. So it was definitely medical malpractice because there was lying. But was it fraud? Is this the scene of a crime? Is this the scene of an assault? Or is this a place where lots of desperate people came and left pregnant? I'm Jenny Kleeman, and from something else, this is The Immaculate Deception. Episode one, The Clinic. I've been writing a book that looks at the future of birth and it's made me realise just how much power we are already putting in the hands of fertility doctors. We depend on them to help make our families as fertility rates decline, as we delay becoming parents, as the definition of family becomes broader than ever before. We depend on them when we're at our most vulnerable. Joey, hi. <laughs> Good morning. Oh, hello, who's this? This is Jack. He's from Spain, adopted. This is Joey Hoofman. He's one of many people whose life changed when they found out what happened in the clinic in Barendrecht. In 2017, when he was 30 years old, he summoned the courage to ask his mother a question. It had tormented him for as long as he could remember. He'd just arrived back in the Netherlands after a holiday in the Canary Islands. He was feeling refreshed, relaxed, strong for the first time in years. His mother had been looking after his dog while he was away. So we picked up (laughs) the the dog. And when he saw her, he felt that the time was finally right. I asked her in the garden with a cup of coffee, Mom, uh, yeah, I'm now okay, but I wasn't. Uh, for a long time and there's still one question that's bothering me is my father my biological father because I have really big doubts and I ask is there something happened to you or am I from a neighbor or somebody else and she was quite upset uh, when I asked her that and she wouldn't believe that I think that I'm not from my father She wouldn't believe that you would think that she'd been unfaithful. Yeah, yeah. She was really distressed by it. And she wouldn't want to talk with me anymore. I just said, Mom, please, I have to know for sure. Can we start at the beginning? Joey grew up in Rotterdam, but I met him over 100 kilometres away in the north of Holland. So, I mean, there's a lot of questions I would ask you. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Joey. <laughs> Joey has smile lines around his eyes, a narrow face, prominent teeth. His home is spotless and ordered, a stark contrast to the chaotic life he had when he was younger. It was never a secret that Joey's parents had needed help conceiving him. They told me that um, they went to a doctor because of my father. His dad had a vasectomy after fathering two children in a previous marriage. So they undone the procedure because my mom really wanted to have children of their own and they went to the the hospital. Joey's parents said the fertility treatment they received was straightforward. His mother was artificially inseminated with his father's sperm. So that uh, the seed of my my dad uh, was uh, planting in the womb of my mom. That's what she told me. But this explanation didn't sit right with Joey because he'd always felt like he was an outsider in his family. My brother and my sister, we were so different from each other. And my brother was more of a fighter and I was quite on my own. 
My father had always debts. So every time you get a present or something, <laughs> then they say, uh, yeah, we have to hide it because <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have a lot of debt. So people can't take our furniture. <laughs> so you have to uh, put your stuff uh, in, a, in a suitcase and bring it to the neighbors, uh, that kind of things. Mm. And I already was saving my, my money. <laughs> Uh, and, I, and I was quite good at it, so I could not understand at that time. While Joey was entrepreneurial and resourceful, his parents spent most of their time at home drinking and arguing. They were fighting and the police came and you come back from school and you hear in the streets already the, the music playing out loud and you think, oh no, not again, this is all the third time this week you know that it, it would be late and that you are shaking and trembling in your, in your bed. Joey couldn't bear living like this and feeling so isolated and out of place. At only 15 years old, he'd had enough. He met his first boyfriend, moved in with him and left his family home forever. It was the best decision I had ever made at that time. By the time Joey was 19, he owned his own gym. Business was thriving. He was in a stable, loving relationship. He'd grown into a completely different person to his dad. But even though he'd been able to escape the chaos of his family home, his unease about his identity remained. Something still didn't make sense. Close friends to me um, yeah, saw that it's really bothering me. And yeah, the bother became a depression when my father passed away because I knew maybe I'm never going to know what, what's happening or, or what happened at that time. So you were in a really bad state when he passed away? Uh, when he passed away, I thought it was uh, also uh, uh, grief. Uh, but yeah, it, it never stopped. So after two or three or four years, I was still in, in a state of mind of depression and don't want to come out of my bed. And, and yeah, the, it was the worst feeling I ever had. Joey's depression brought him to the brink of suicide. His psychiatrist urged him to speak to his mother. He finally confronted her with his doubts in March 2017. He asked her to take him through exactly how he was conceived. She saw the straws with the name of uh, my father. He's talking about the plastic straws that contain the sperm used in the insemination. She said they were labeled with the name of Joey's father. He had to be Joey's dad. And then she began to talk about the clinic. Joey wanted to find out as much detail as possible about this clinic. I asked, yeah, what's the name of the doctor? And she said, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's quite long ago, but uh, his name was Jan probably. And um, yeah, it's in the street on a dike. A doctor called Jan something. A street with a dike, one of those little waterways you see all over Dutch cities not far from where Joey had grown up, in the suburb called Barendrecht. We're Googling, and then we saw all the articles. What did you read? What were the headlines? The government was shutting down the clinic. The administration was not OK. There was story after story about the clinic. Complaints about missing paperwork and lost straws. Suspicions that women had been given the wrong sperm. A court case and a famous fertility doctor in charge of it all. I said, is this the clinic you went through? Look, mom, there's something wrong. 
And yes, she was upset and threw me out of the house at that time. It was almost like um, like a realtor showing uh, a really nice house and a nice man. Coming up next, someone who started looking for her biological father 20 years earlier. Her search led her inside the clinic. Did you ask about who your donor was when you were there? Yes, I did. I asked questions about if they have records or something. And the people at the administration would already tell me there, there's nothing here, everything is destroyed. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, I'm Carly. I'm part of the production team behind The Immaculate Deception. We'll go back to the show in just a moment, but first I want to tell you about another podcast you might enjoy. Crooked Media's Hysteria is a weekly podcast hosted by political commentator and comedy writer Aaron Ryan, who's joined by former White House Deputy Chief of Staff for Operations Alyssa Mastromonaco, plus a bio-coastal squad of funny, opinionated women. They cover everything from reproductive rights to rom-coms, breaking down the political news of the week, plus the topics, trends, and cultural stories that affect women's lives. New episodes of Hysteria drop every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi! Hello, Marsha! Hi! Hi, Marsha, oh, it's hi. Jenny Kleeman here. Standing beside me. <laughs> oh, there you are! I met Marsha Elvers in Rotterdam. Almost two decades ago, she got a private tour of the clinic as she searched for answers about her identity. So tell me, who did you grow up thinking you were? Until I was 17, I thought I had another biological father, but he wasn't in my life. So I grew up together with my mother and that was okay for me. I had a really happy childhood. She's 38 with bright, smiling eyes and a striking smile. She has the aura of someone who did grow up happy. And then when I was 17, she told me that that man that she married once isn't my biological father. And then she told me that I was from a donor. And she was really scared that I would be very angry or would run away from home because she never told me before. For years, neither her mother nor her legal father had breathed a word to anyone about how their daughter had been conceived. They never told anybody until my mother and father got a divorce and he told his family. So then my mother had to tell everybody the true story. 
but it was never meant to be told. Was she ashamed? Is yeah, that the I right word? So. Yeah. At the, the clinic, they would tell people, it's better not to tell anybody. The secret was really recommended over there. So it would be better for the child if nobody knew that there would be another father. Wow. Yeah. So your mother took that to heart? Oh, yes. The doctor who ran the clinic had a presence and authority that impressed Marsha's mother. And she always said it was such a charming man and he was so empathic and you would really listen to him. It, it would seem like the right way to go. So they followed his orders and didn't tell a soul. But just like Joey, just like anyone entering their teenage years and thinking about who they are and who they want to be, Marsha was wrestling with big questions. She wanted to know more about the father who had left her when she was only three. I was asking those questions from, I think, 11 or 12. Just the curiosity, why did you leave me and my mother, those issues. I really was ready to confront him with that. So my mother also, when I was 12, she uh, called the clinic and she said, well, um, Marcia's 12 now, I want to tell her. But when she spoke to the doctor... He told her, no, don't do that. Wait until she's at least 17. When Marsha turned 17 and her mother finally told her that her father was an anonymous sperm donor, Marsha still had questions. She wanted to know how she was conceived and where. And then um, she told me I could go for a tour in the clinic that was offered by them. So I did. What was it like? Yeah, that was really a really strange experience for somebody who's 17. Yeah. I went together with my uncle because my mother didn't really want to go there anymore. She said I had too much mm. emotional stuff over there and uh, go with my brother. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I got to see the back entrance where the donors would come in and the little rooms with all the, uh, the porn magazines and, and the videotapes. The staff who were giving Marsha the tour were so used to the process of sperm donors coming and going that they didn't think there was anything strange about showing a 17-year-old girl the little rooms where men watched porn and ejaculated into sample pots. And they were all really enthusiastic about what they were doing there. It was almost like, um, like a realtor showing a, a really nice house and a nice man. And then also the treatment rooms for the mothers. And I uh, went to the, the rooms with the tanks where they would keep the frozen uh, samples. And they would show me how, how to get it out. And, and I saw the straws. And then also um, I went to the administration's office. That was in another place in, in that building. I think that was the most strange experience for me. Because when I entered there, there would be working all these younger girls, all with long blonde hair. The women were startled to see visitors coming into the office. And they would turn over the, all the pages with information on it. So I could not see anything, not any information, no names, nothing. Everybody would get real jumpy and, and turn all the pages and say, oh, hi, welcome. <laughs> did you ask about who your donor was when you were there? Yes, I did. I didn't ask that directly. But of course, I, I asked questions about if they have records or something. And the people at the administration would already tell me there, there's nothing here. Everything is destroyed. Mm. Yeah. 
I knew that I was a donor child and that was okay for me. And no, I would never be able to find out uh, who my biological father is. Mm. So I let that go. But then 10 years later, Marsha was on maternity leave. And I was watching television in the morning. It's a coffee time (laughs) in the Netherlands. (laughs) She saw something on daytime TV in 2010, an appeal for donor children to get in touch. To get your DNA tested and to see if you have some siblings or maybe find your donor father. I watched that and I thought, oh, wow. That's the only way to find out if I have some siblings. I talked to my husband about it and he said, let's go for it. So I did. I had a blood test for this uh, television show. I waited for three months and I actually had had a match. Marsha had been an only child all her life. Now she finally discovered she had a half-sister. I thought, ah, I found one. (laughs) That's really special. And uh, they also told me right away that there was no match with the donor. Marsha and her new sister emailed each other and met up a couple of times. She went on living her life as a busy new mother, not thinking too much about her biological father. Until 2017 the same year that Joey had discovered that he, too, had been conceived in the clinic in Barendrecht. I knew that there was something wrong. The same year when Joey was reading the headlines about the clinic. He'd seen that it was closed down in 2009. He'd learned about the rumours, the complaints and suspicions about what went on inside it. I was quite emotional, uh, stressed, and I tried to call my mom for a couple of times, but she did not answer the phone. And there, among the news reports, Joey saw a photo of the doctor who ran the clinic, Dr. Jan Karbat. I knew this is something really absurd, but I can't see his face. I I see myself in it. The narrow face, smile lines, those unmistakable teeth. I had the same smell, the same uh, look in the eyes. So I sent a picture to friends and I did not say anything. And then they say, is that you, Joey? He was the living image of the doctor. Meanwhile, Marsha got a call from an unknown number. I was at work and when I drove home from work, it's like a 10 minute drive, so it's nothing. I missed the call. It was from a social worker at FIOM, the Dutch organisation that helps adopted and donor children find their biological families. Marsha's DNA had been in its database ever since that TV show. So I went in and my mother's always... This was on a Monday because my mother's always watching my children on a Monday. (laughs) And uh, then my telephone would ring and I told my mother, well, I don't want to answer this call in front of the children. I'm going to go outside to to have... uh, more quiet conversation. And I answered the telephone and there was this really nice social worker from Fiume and she said, well, I have some news and I actually have two kinds of news. Okay, well, tell me. Well, first of all, we found 18 of your half-brothers and sisters. So I was, wow, 18. Oh, that is, that's a lot. And uh, wow, amazing. She said, well, yeah, I have to tell you something else because I think... We know who the donor is. And then uh, I was already a little bit shocked because mm. it's really weird that, that they would find your donor. 
Um, and she said, well, yeah, we're quite positive, like 99% sure that it's uh, Dr. Kerbaat himself. And, oh my, <laughs> I have to sit for a minute. In 2017, Joey Hoofman and Marsha Elvers were confronted with the unimaginable. Dr. Jan Karbat, the fertility doctor once renowned across Holland for making his patients happy, the man their mothers had trusted to help them when they were at their most vulnerable, was almost certainly their father. Joey and Marsha soon connected with each other. They were half-siblings. First, they were 18 then 23, then 34. When I started work on this podcast, the total was around 55. Now, just a few months later, more than 60 people are known to have been fathered by Dr. Jan Karbat without their mother's knowledge or consent. That number is growing all the time. Every month or so, a new child of Karbat joins the family. That's more than 60 in a country of 17 million Many of them grew up in the Rotterdam area, and it's not a big place. Just think about the practicalities of what it would mean to have so many half-siblings. For years, these children of Karbat, these half-brothers and sisters, will have been passing one another in the street, perhaps studying in the same places, maybe even being attracted to each other. Who knows what complicated relationships they could have got into unknowingly because of the doctor's deception. I have to tell my children, if you get a partner and you want to think about children, get a DNA test to make sure you're not making children with your nephew or your your cousin. You're constantly screening people in your surroundings if they have the same resemblance and if you should be in contact or avoid it. You're you're paranoid that you might be running into a, a, a sibling. Yeah, and that's why I also did a DNA test with my husband, just to be sure. This is the story of the fertility specialist who used his own sperm to get his patients pregnant. It's the story of mothers who were duped into carrying their doctor's babies and those babies discovering they were the product of one of the biggest medical frauds Europe has ever known. It's emerging as the first generation of donor-conceived babies reaches adulthood, at a time when home DNA testing has become so normal that we give each other test kits for Christmas. It's a shocking story, but it's not extraordinary. I've discovered at least 10 other doctors worldwide who got their patients pregnant just like Jan Karbat did. Dr. Norman Barwin is accused of using his own sperm. Dr. Mortimer allegedly used his own sperm to impregnate... Dr. Donald Klein, who used his own specimen on unsuspecting women... I want to find out what kind of doctor would do this to his patients and why. Who's the victim? The mothers or their children? And how can they get justice? In this series, I'm going to tell the story of the Carbat kids. Go on, tell me what the group's called. The Carbastards. I'm going to meet the people conceived at the clinic who are struggling to move on. 
just a simple sorry this shouldn't have happened yes it did happen and i am sorry for you guys the ones who have moved on he's given me life and i enjoy it and the ones who are still waiting do you think carbat might be your father potentially yes Next time on The Immaculate Deception, Joey arrives on the doctor's doorstep. What did it feel like to go and have a look at the clinic knowing that's where you were? So I saw his name and then I saw people moving out and then the lady came to me and it was the wife of the doctor. And I'm going to meet a super donor who donated sperm at Carbat's clinic for decades. What goes through the mind of the sort of person who's prepared to father dozens of children? We all want to plant our flags one way or the other. And I did plant my flag. I plant 200 flags. The Immaculate Deception is a Something Else production. It was written and presented by me, Jenny Kleeman. Paul Smith is the producer, with additional production from Arlie Adlington. Mixing and sound design comes from Will Short at Spoke Media. The editor and executive producer is Peggy Sutton. Thank you to Magda Saron, Dan Cocker, Mark Rivers and Steve Ackerman. If you identify with any of the issues we're reporting on and have a story you'd like to share with us, our email address is deception at somethingelse.com. <laughs>